1: Tony kept a manual for taxidermy in his back pocket, and it was really his guidebook on how to commit murder. He didn't look at women as human beings. He looked at women as prey.
0: I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. In the late 60s, a serial killer stalked women in New England. His name was Tony Costa. He was unusual because he spent a lot of time drawing in his victims. We've heard this story from a woman who Costa babysat, but this is a different account. Journalist Casey Sherman tells me the story from his book, Helltown, the untold story of a serial killer on Cape Cod. Well, let's talk about this book. Is it different? than the other books that you've done, how does it stand out to you?
1: This book is much different from anything else that I've ever done. And I was really inspired when I wrote this book by two of the characters that I write about, Kurt Vonnegut and Norman Mailer. Now these are uh, writers that really explored and pioneered new journalism back in the uh, late 1960s and early 70s. And what that means is taking a, a real event and then, you know, sprinkling in some fictional dust along the way to provide some connective tissue uh, between the storylines. So, you know, I've never done that before. I've written, you know, 16 books prior to that, and those were all very hard investigative journalism. This uh, book, Helltown, I feel like I needed to pay homage to these two writers by providing some context that otherwise... I probably wouldn't have added in previous books. Now, you know, with Helltown. I write against uh, a landscape and a backdrop of the turbulent 1960s, 1968, 1969. You know, in 1968, the summer of love is a distant memory at that point. You've got the assassinations of Robert F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King. You've got the bloody Democratic National Convention protests in Chicago, the inauguration of Richard Nixon, Chappaquiddick with Senator Ted Kennedy, Woodstock, the moon landing, and ultimately the and murders in Los Angeles. And so I really, you know, leaned in to the time and the place so that I could give the reader a feeling that they may not feel if reading a straight journalistic approach to a story like this.
0: Well, and this is such a harrowing personal story. We've heard it from Lisa Rodman, who was the serial killers, one of his charges, one of the people who he took care of. But this is really a big deep dive into the psyche of this guy. Before we talk about the story, tell me about your sources and what you used to build this world of ultimately 1969 Provincetown.
1: Sure. And that's a great question, Kate, because you're only as good as as the material that uh, you can gather when you're uh, tackling a project like this. Now, I grew up on Cape Cod in the uh, early 1970s, late 1970s, and I'd heard of this story about these murders that took place in Provincetown in 1968 and 1969. I never really paid too close attention to it because it really wasn't treated on Cape Cod or anywhere else as a real devastating and historic and notorious crime. You know, when I'd put on my Luke Skywalker costume in the 1970s and go uh, trick or treating, that's when I'd hear the name Tony Costa, the serial killer we ultimately wrote about in Helltown. It was he became almost the boogeyman to kids growing up on the Cape. But in uh, um, during the pandemic, my brother Todd, who was a great muse of mine um, and collaborator throughout my entire career, just called me one day as I was working on a writing project. And he said, Casey... It's a beautiful day, stop what you're doing, and we're going to get a six-pack of beer and drive the Cape and just hang out like brothers. And, and we did, and we had a beautiful time together, and we went from village to village until we ultimately ended up in Provincetown. And I remember driving down Commercial Street at the height of tourist season, and all the storefronts were shuttered. So we began to talk about the ghosts real and imagined. In Helltown, and ultimately, we're landing on landmarks that we knew Tony Costa had lived in, had worked in, and that many of his victims had been seen at the last time of their lives. So, after that day, I decided to go back to my writing office here and start to do a deep dive on the Costa story to decide whether or not I felt like it was worth my time to write as a book. And you start with documentation. So, going back and getting all of the firsthand primary source documents that you can find. And, you know, none of the um, court records were ever digitized. Here in the uh, in Massachusetts, based on the Costa case, so going through you know official channels to get that information was exhausting and uh, not very productive. But fortunately for me, there were several investigators who were still around who covered the case, who kept all the case files. And as an investigative journalist, part of your job is to gain the trust and the comfort level of these people so that they can share their information with you. So, you know, I was um, privy to well over 3,000 court documents, crime scene documents, crime scene photos, and ultimately an unpublished manuscript written by the killer himself, Tony Costa.
0: Wow, that must have been so eye-opening for you.
1: It was, and and it allowed me, you know, and I think it allows the reader to go into these murder scenes in Helltown really through the eyes of the killer himself because many of the descriptions are are taken from that unpublished manuscript. So you're seeing what Tony Costa saw, you're feeling what he felt, and ultimately I was able to, you know, understand um, the motives uh, behind these murders.
0: Let's go ahead and get started on the story. Where does it make sense for you to start with this story?
1: Let's go back to uh, 1968 and 1969. As I had mentioned, it was a very uh, tumultuous time in American history. And, you know, once I I focused on Tony Coster, I tried to find out, you know, who he was and, you know, how he was able to seduce and manipulate, you know, so many young women. He was a very charismatic figure, very similar in ways to Charles Manson. In fact, a uh, little known fact about this whole story is Tony Coster and Charles Manson knew each other. Wow. They were living in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco in 1967. Uh, I know for a fact that they had gone to the same parties, breathed the same air. So two evolving killers sharing time together. I don't necessarily think they talked about their plans for the future, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But just, you know, to see this evolution and to see these two men, you know, so closely connected in terms of, you know, what they were doing and, and, and how they were able, as I mentioned, to really manipulate and seduce, you know, women who uh, again, you know, uh, Helltown is dedicated to, to the victims here. And, you know, I, I really wanted to provide agency to the women that were murdered. Uh, These women weren't statistics. They weren't numbers. They were young women who had families, who had hopes and dreams. And all of those hopes and dreams were stuffed and snuffed out by a sadistic serial killer. My aunt, 19-year-old Mary Sullivan, was the youngest and final victim of the notorious 1960s Boston Strangler murder spree. So I know this world very well. I reinvestigated my aunt's murder for 15 years and theorized that there wasn't just one killer murdering these women, but several killers under the guise of this Jack the Ripper type character resurrected to stalk the women of Boston. And what, what that told me, Kate, was that, you know, there are more men that are capable of committing these crimes, whether they're crimes of passion or crimes of evil. And I think for Tony Costa, it was really a, a crime of both. You know, if you look at Tony Costa, you're looking at somebody that is, you know, the living, breathing embodiment of uh, the Hitchcock character, Norman Bates from Psycho. Tony Costa had a love hate relationship with his mother. He was uh, uh, raised by a single mother after his father was killed at sea during world war ii and uh, when tony was about five or six years old his mother began to date again and uh got remarried had another child and all that love that had been given to one child alone had to be spread out through the entire family and I think that really, you know, created a, a chasm in Tony Costa's brain. And I think at that point, you know, he hated his mother. He also loved her. And as he began to evolve with these psychotic thoughts, um, he did what a lot of serial killers do, is that they they begin to work on smaller animals. So Tony Costa, um, you know, for example, Kate, if you had a, a pet, uh in tony costa's neighborhood just south of boston in the early 1960s well you know uh, a lot of those pets went missing and that's because tony costa would take the pets kill them dissect them and uh uh, perform taxidermy on these pets and uh you know you see that with a lot of the different killers that are profiled by the fbi by myself and, and by others the evolution of a killer And when Tony Costa was 16 years old, he had sexually assaulted a teenage girl in his neighborhood. And at that point, um, there was an ability or an opportunity to provide him the help that he needed at the time, uh, put him away and give him some real psychiatric care. But his mother pleaded with the judge to uh, be lenient on him, to let him go. And if uh, he did so, she was going to send him to live with a family in Provincetown which is what the judge uh, ultimately did. But uh, Tony Costa did not get the help that he needed. Um, instead, he began to evolve and grow as a serial killer.
0: When he writes about his childhood, how is he framing all of this? Is he saying this was the beginning? Is he lamenting things? Or how does how does he talk about what happens with his mother and the family and everything?
1: You know, I mean, he's he's the victim in his own tragedy. Yeah, and you know the the interesting thing when you get into the psychology or psychology rather of Tony Coster is that he had a split personality, and they call that you know the ego splitting in psychoanalysis. So Tony Coster was able to blame these very brutal murders of women on somebody else another personality that he had growing inside him. So even when he's writing this unpublished book, he's blaming these murders on this personality that he created for himself.
0: And you believe that or is this just something that he is doing to mitigate the things that he's done?
1: No, I I believe that there was ego splitting there. And, uh, you know, the psychiatrist at the time believed it as well. I also had access to 12 hours of audio taped interviews with Tony Costa done by his attorneys in 1969. So I, you know, I really got a sense of who he was. And he was clearly very smart, clearly very charismatic, incredibly brutal and certainly thought he was smarter than his victims and also law enforcement uh, that was trying to catch him.
0: Well, tell me what happens. So he is, instead of going into psychiatric care, he goes to Provincetown to live with a family member. How old is he? What year is this? How far behind are we before he starts killing people? And how does it go for him?
1: This um, happens in the you know early 1960s. He's sent as a high school student to Provincetown. Once he's there, he's You know, it's a very small school, Provincetown High School. He enrolls. He gets a few friends, but he's very shy. He uh, falls uh, uh, in love with a 13-year-old girl named Avis uh, Costa, eventually Costa. uh, And he impregnates her and marries her when she's 14. Wow. So Costa's just graduating high school marries this underage girl because she's pregnant and begins a life of alleged, uh, you know, happy matrimony. But there's anything but happiness in the cost household. You know, he's very controlling of his young, again, underage teenage wife, she's, I feel like she's a great victim in this entire uh, saga as well. And he begins much like a lot of people did in the uh, mid to late 1960s experimenting with drugs. And he certainly uh, became the Pied Piper in the drug scene in Provincetown uh, in the late 1960s, which, you know, elevated his popularity amongst young people. And that's why he was able to gain um, friendships with a lot of these young women who were part of that scene. Tony Costa was somebody that was well-read and studied a great deal. When uh, people spoke to him, he sounded like uh, the actor Tony Curtis. He was very erudite. And he always kept a thesaurus and a dictionary with him because he was always training himself to learn new words, to sound, you know, to speak in a mid-Atlantic accent Mm -hmm. that he had seen his heroes on the big screen use. And I think that was, you know, unique and certainly um, alluring and and exotic for, you know, some of these girls that grew up on the Cape. And uh, he was able to gain their trust, unfortunately.
0: What is he doing for work?
1: He was, he was a, a laborer. He was a carpenter. I mean, Tony was really good with his hands. Hmm. Uh, so he uh, worked at a lot of the different businesses uh, in Provincetown. There's a very famous hotel right on commercial street in Provincetown called the crown and anchor Inn. Tony was the um handyman at the property lived on property for uh several months uh so his his reputation grew as somebody that you know was very good uh building houses or at least maintaining properties so uh you know he earned a nice living for himself but you know he was also um very heavily involved in drugs and that ultimately caused his downfall
0: Wow. Okay. What's the first big thing that happens in Tony Costa's life?
1: Well, the first uh, woman that goes missing in Provincetown was a woman named uh, Sydney Monson. She was a 19-year-old recent high school graduate uh, from East Ham or Nauset High School who was living in Provincetown with her boyfriend, and her sister lived nearby. She was bubbly, had a bright future ahead of her, always saw her future in California. Uh, She was very artsy, and she read a great deal, and she became friends with Tony Costa, and uh, Tony was the last person that saw her alive. She goes missing in 1968, and nobody looks for her. And Kate, really, that's one of the most disturbing things I found out about this case was that women were disappearing on the Outer Cape and uh, sometimes their own families didn't care. Law enforcement certainly didn't. And it was a time where young people were, you know, fleeing, you know, getting hitchhiking to California or to New York City in Greenwich Village. So there wasn't a lot of focus on where these young women were. And uh, the police officers in Provincetown and Truro, you know, anytime Sidney Monson's name was mentioned, they, you know, rolled their eyes and just thought, oh, well, you know, she's another hippie who uh, decided to leave Provincetown. Well, she didn't decide to leave Provincetown. She was taken from Provincetown and buried um, under shallow earth nine miles away. Um, Several months later, another young girl goes missing. Her name is Susan Perry. Again, 19 years old graduate of Provincetown High School, uh, falls in love with Tony Costa. She goes missing, and Tony Costa spreads a rumor around town or a story that, you know, she has uh, traveled to Mexico with friends to see the uh, Summer Olympics in Mexico, which was completely, you know, erroneous. Um, she was murdered in the, you know, same uh, way that Cindy Monson was and the break in the case kate happened in early 1969 uh, january of that year where two uh, young professional women decide to drive from providence rhode island to cape cod for a, a weekend getaway in the middle of winter and uh, they turn up at a boarding house in town where Tony Costa was living at the time, they were introduced to Tony by the landlady. Tony offers to guide them around Provincetown, you know, off season because he knew where all the good bars were and where, you know, tourists were likely to gather. And um, And they they become very trusting of of Tony Costa. And what happens to them is they go missing and Tony's life begins to unravel after that.
0: Oh boy. So you've got already four women. Is this all in the same year, you said, in 68, or is this spills into 69?
1: Yeah, 68 and 69. So I, I would say, in the span of about eight months, four women go missing.
0: What is it about Tony's life? that allows him to do things like that. So it sounds like he is sort of a tradesman who can go from job to job and his wife is stuck at home with a young child. Is that what's happening? And he is so overbearing and controlling that he can just walk in and walk out whenever he
1: wants? Well, Tony had complete freedom at the time because he was um, separated from his wife, Avis. So Tony was living uh, either at the Crown & Anchor uh, Hotel or couch surfing with friends He was a bit of a vagabond. There wasn't anything to really tie him down. He didn't have a relationship with his children or his wife, so he could come and go as he pleased.
0: If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them.
1: So two young women in their 20s, uh, Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wysocki, decide to go on a weekend from Providence, Rhode Island, to Provincetown, Massachusetts. And they do so because they've been under pressure from work. Um, they're also very sad that Richard Nixon has just been inaugurated as president. So there's a, a lot that they want to kind of break from reality uh, with. So they decide to take Pat Walsh's blue VW uh, Beetle, to Provincetown for the weekend, and you know a lot of people do travel to the Cape off season uh, because the tourists had gone at that time, and they really got the streets to themselves. And uh, these two young ladies book themselves at a boarding house where Tony Costa has, happens to be living at the time. They're um, introduced to Tony by the landlady, and again, Tony is very friendly, very smart. You know these women are well read, as is Tony, so they they hit it off very quickly. And uh, as the women begin to um, have a great night in Provincetown in uh, late January of 1969, Tony Costa starts to stalk them. And he's following them from bar to bar, and he's watching them have the time of their lives while he sits in the background sipping Chianti. And that was his uh, drink of choice. It sounds very Hannibal lecter but that's exactly what Tony Costa drank at the time, according to his unpublished manuscript. And uh, the day after um, having a great evening in Provincetown, the young women wake up and they see a note on their door from Tony or Antone, as he called himself. Tony Costa had asked Pat Walsh and Marianne Wysocki to drive him to his employer's house to pick up a work check. These young ladies were expecting company later in the day. They had a friend who was uh, going to meet them in Provincetown, so they had, they had time to kill. And unfortunately, so did Tony Costa. He got into the back of their uh, Volkswagen Beetle. They rambled out of Provincetown down Route 6A, a beautiful picturesque two-lane mini-highway toward Truro, and Tony Costa told them that he wanted to show them his marijuana garden. Hmm. Now, again, this was 1968-69, marijuana was illegal in Massachusetts, but every young person was certainly indulging at the time. So the women said, okay, and Tony Costa took them first to an ancient cemetery intro and they were looking at all the unusual engravings on the tombstones and drinking wine and getting high and it was a it was a great early afternoon for the three of them until uh the two women decide that uh it's time to get back to provincetown and what they don't understand is not only does tony cause to have marijuana stashed in the woods but he's got a uh, two killing weapons a knife and uh, uh a handgun a pistol And he goes into the woods and he extracts those weapons and he faces these two women on a uh, desolate, uh, quiet dirt road in the middle of the woods and he kills them both.
0: That's terrible just to think that these four women in less than a year have gone missing and are murdered and buried. And what I think is interesting about this story is the investment that Tony Costa makes Which to me is very different than other serial killers. You know, he is spending time, it's a risk. He's spending time with these women, these two women right? I mean, people have seen them together at the inn. They know each other. He is identifiable. If they are discovered, their bodies are discovered, and the alarm is sounded, the police are probably going to want to talk to him or someone, you know, nearby to ask witnesses. So it's interesting. It's, to me, not the traditional M.O. of the serial killer who stalks the person he doesn't know, like a BTK or a Ted Bundy. So it's interesting. He really has invested time in this.
1: He's invested time in this. You know, he's a bit of a sloppy killer. But I think this is where the ego splitting ulterior personality of Tony Costa kicks in. You know, there's a likelihood that Tony Costa didn't even realize what he was doing at the time. So he could perform in public as if he didn't know what was going on because a part of him did not know. What was going on, of course, when the uh, alarm bells are sounded and the police finally decide to take uh, a serious look in the disappearances of uh, the two women from Providence, Rhode Island, Tony Costa's name is the first name mentioned by the landlady in Provincetown. So there's a direct connection between the prime suspect and the two missing women. But again, Tony Costa thinks he's smarter than um, the investigators. So instead of shying away from the case and staying in the shadows, Tony Costa goads the investigators. He's sending them notes. He's confronting them in the middle of the police station, proclaiming his innocence. Because he never thinks that the bodies of those two women and the two other victims are ever going to be unearthed because he believes he's hidden them so well.
0: And Are they all in the same woods or are they in different woods? You said Truro, right?
1: Yeah, I said Truro. So they're all in the same woods. In fact, many of the victims were buried in the exact same plot. Uh Their remains were stacked on top of each other like cords of wood. And again, that's really how Tony Costa treated these women. He didn't look at them as human beings.
0: Is there some sort of an emotional connection between Tony and these woods? I mean, I know there's marijuana, but is there any significance to it to him?
1: I think there's really, you know, besides the fact that it was a very remote area uh, of Cape Cod, really off the beaten path, there wasn't a, necessarily a uh, personal connection uh, with him to those area of woods, but he's he certainly lured other women to those areas. In fact, there was a Provincetown High School student whom he lured there about a year prior to that uh, with the same promise of you know, sharing some marijuana with her in the woods and doing what young people do. But instead, he brought with him a bow and an arrow. And he actually shot her with a bow and an arrow, shot her in the shoulder. Unfortunately, she didn't report that to police at the time, and he was allowed to continue and evolve as a killer.
0: What would have been the connection that police would have made forensically in 1969 between Tony Costa and any of these four victims had one of them been discovered.
1: These women had their pocketbooks on them. Tony Costa buried their personal belongings in the woods uh, outside where he had buried the bodies. But investigators early on in the case, you know, discovered uh, his, uh, you know, a rope that they were able to test for blood samples. And, you know, the blood, it was a, Uh, very similar to the blood of one of the victims. So this is really early, you know, kind of DNA analysis. So the forensics in this case were quite strong. Tony Costa's fingerprints were on um, the vehicle that the women were driving at the time. Tony Costa claimed that the women had sold him the vehicle and offered a uh, bill of sale that he had written. So they were able to do handwriting analysis as well. Which he was able to uh, disprove any idea that these women were, you know, selling a vehicle of any kind to Tony Costa, and so you've got this incredible case. Evolving, And, you all, you know, what what really drove me to the story, Kate, was, again, I didn't really want to focus on not necessarily just a serial killer story. As a writer, I wanted to explore the dark fascination that writers have with their subject matters. So while these murders are happening on the Outer Cape, two uh, well-known writers become darkly obsessed with the crimes, Norman Mailer, who was living in Provincetown at the time, and Kurt Vonnegut who was living 40 miles south in Barnstable. And uh, it was interesting at the time, 1968-69, Norman Mailer was a household name. He had been a best-selling author since The Naked and the Dead in the late 1940s. Uh, He was kind of the heir apparent to Ernest Hemingway, both in his writing style and his larger-than-life personality. Kurt Vonnegut was the exact opposite. Nobody knew who Kurt was. He had already published several books, but he uh, was a very, you know, unknown writer. In the uh, late 1960s, and he was um, just about to publish what would become his opus, Slaughterhouse Five, which would catapult him into worldwide fame. But Kurt stumbles upon this case because his daughter, Edie, is hanging out with a group of hippies in Provincetown. So as young girls go missing, he's really kind of concerned and worried about his own daughter's safety. And Kurt Vonnegut was also a crime reporter in Chicago back in the, you know, late 1940s, early 1950s, before he moved to Cape Cod. So Kurt put on his investigative hat and began to look at these cases, as did Norman Mailer. And Mailer was really more interested in how somebody a la Tony Costa, you know, could explode and commit these types of crimes because, Norman Mailer had tried to kill his wife in 1962 in uh, New York City and was uh, never brought to trial because his wife never brought charges against him. So he was a man who was skating on the razor's edge of sanity and darkness. And here it was uh, blossoming around him and the embodiment of Tony Costa.
0: If we go back to that time in 1969, we have these four women who are missing. And you say, once the police in Provincetown get it together and start realizing that they need to put some things together, you said they went and talked to Tony because he was the last person to see these two women. Is that right?
1: Yeah, they went to talk to Tony. And Tony, um, you know, was vehement in his denial of any responsibility. He said he knew the women. He said that the women had sold him the Volkswagen Beetle. Of course, the investigators didn't believe a word of it. And one of the investigators even gave Tony some sage advice. Uh, You better find a defense attorney very quick because we're going to ultimately find these missing women. And uh, the direct link to you is going to be pretty apparent. But that took almost two months for investigators to put all the pieces together that ultimately brought them to the National Forest in Truro, where they stumbled upon these death pits and they were able to, um, you know, find the remains of. Again, not only Pat Walsh and Marianne Wysaki, the two women that they were looking for, but Susan Perry and Sydney Monza, two women that had gone missing, but certainly no alarm bells had been raised by their families. So now Costa is accused of four murders and immediately state police dispatch a, a unit to Boston where Tony Costa is hiding at the time. And they ar- arrest him very quickly uh, without incident.
0: So they find him in Boston where he's been hiding, and they arrest him. What happens with the wheels of justice turning at this point?
1: Well, they bring him back to Cape Cod, and the district attorney at the time, Ed Denise, was a political animal, and he amplified the murders that Tony Costa had committed. The murders that Tony Costa had committed were brutal on their face, but Ed Denise, the prosecutor, began to call Tony the Cape Cod vampire because he told the press that he was not only... Murdering and dismembering these women, but he was also biting them and leaving his teeth marks in their in their bodies, and that was that was the only thing about this case that was not true.
0: Because he wanted publicity.
1: Yep, that's uh, that, that's exactly what he did. He was looking at this uh, case as a to catapult him back to national prominence. You know, in in a way, Tony Costa was also doing the same thing. Tony Costa wanted to be a star. He wanted to be famous. He, uh, you know, as I, I mentioned, covering this case to me is the most brutal serial killer in American history. The victims and what he did to them certainly are proof of that. But in um, late summer of 1969, Charles Manson and his family begin murdering famous people in California, which takes the Tony Costa murders completely out of the headlines. And Tony Costa would write his lawyer about this, you know, not understanding why he wasn't generating the same publicity and the same notoriety as Charles Manson was.
0: Well, let's talk about the criminal case. And Ed Denise is preparing his case against Tony. He goes on trial for how many? All four or just two?
1: He just, he went on trial for two murders, uh, which really upset the families of the other two victims here, Susan Perry and Sidney Monson. But Ed Denise wanted a sure thing. And he knew that he had enough evidence uh, to try Tony Costa for the murders of Pat Walsh and Mary and because he had physical evidence that tied him to the case. He had witnesses that tied him to the case. With the other two women, they had been clearly dismembered and buried, but the way that they had uh, been killed, you know, because they had been buried for so long, they couldn't determine their cause of death. That's why Denise didn't pursue murder charges against Tony Costa because he didn't think that they would stick. So these women were basically victims in absentia in the Tony Costa trial. But it was the most sensational murder trial in Cape Cod history at the time. You know, Cape Cod is a very sleepy, quiet place where, you know, normally trials are disputes between landowners, farmers or fishermen. Here you would have a criminal trial trial that talks about cannibalism, necrophilia, murder. You know, these things had never even been discussed, uh, certainly in open conversation uh, with anybody on Cape Cod. So, you know, not only was the jury absolutely horrified by it, but also, um, you know, the press and the public were as well. And here is Tony Costa, this mild-mannered killer that you'd look at and you'd think, much like Ted Bundy, well, there's no way he could have done this. There's no way he could be capable of such uh, violence, but he certainly was.
0: So he is on trial for killing Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wysaki. What is the weakness of the case? Are there any weaknesses in Ed Denise's case against him?
1: There really, I mean, it, you know, as, as much of a slam dunk case as you could possibly find. You know, what I thought was interesting is, you know, Tony Costa's defense obviously he uh you know never admitted to the murders at least during trial but he wanted to expose drug culture in itself and how drugs uh you know in american society were doing things detrimental to society and young people and that's what uh his attorneys really wanted to focus on almost uh you know guilt uh, by insanity and so the the case goes you know, several days. It's extremely explosive. There are witnesses, including um, Tony Costa's ex-wife, Avis, because they were divorced by the time the trial actually came around. And the testimony was just graphic, horrific, and uh, Mm. something that people had never heard before.
0: So the trial proceeds. And what is his demeanor? What is your impression of him in court?
1: He's watching, again, a play where he plays the hero. So, uh, you know, Tony Costa is very attentive especially when his wife is on the stand. He's very combative against not only the prosecution, but his own defense for not um, really focusing on ulterior suspects, including a young man named Corey Devereaux, who was a, a high school student, small-time drug dealer in Provincetown at the time. But Corey Devereaux is the name that Tony Costa co-opted for his alter ego. And of course, you know, the defense would never, you know, there wasn't any evidence to suggest that. So the defense had to maintain that, you know, this was a crime of, you know, committed by somebody who could not tell right from wrong because they were heavily influenced by um, psychotropic drugs.
0: Well, we know that he was responsible for four. Has he been able to be tied to any other murders that you know of?
1: Yes. So two uh, women that he knew in San Francisco in the summer of 1967 uh, had gone missing while he was out there. I believe their whereabouts may have been corroborated or these women may have been found years later. But there's another uh, victim here. Uh, Her name was Christine Gallant, a young woman that Tony Costa met in Provincetown in 1968, was dating her. Uh, she had moved back to New York City because she had a job, at, I believe, at Columbia University as a librarian. Tony Costa spent some time with her down there, and she ends up dead in a bathtub. And it's interesting that the medical examiner at the time, the junior medical examiner in charge with, of this case, was Dr. Michael Bodden. Now, Michael Boden, uh, everybody knows, became a, a very celebrated forensic pathologist, He testified in the O.J. Simpson case. He's had his own uh, television show on HBO. I've known Michael for years. Uh, Michael didn't understand that Christine also had a very violent, murderous boyfriend. So, um, you know, I believe that Tony Costa killed Christine Gallant, physically overdosed her, and drowned her in her own bathtub.
0: That's just because of what you know about his personality. He never wrote about Christine.
1: Well, he wrote about her quite extensively, but not the way she was killed. Uh, He always shied away from that. I think if there was anybody that Tony Costa truly loved in his warped world, it was Christine. And, you know, in his crazy demeanor, he loved her enough to kill her, at least according to him.
0: So as the trial comes to a close, what is the jury left with as far as evidence? There's physical evidence and anecdotal evidence against Tony in a case that you think is sort of a slam dunk. And then Tony, his defense is what? Give me a quick summary of the defense.
1: Well, I think it shocked uh, the entire jury and everybody in the courtroom where Tony Costa demanded that he speak to the jury before uh, deliberations. And at that point, Tony Costa confessed and admitted to the crimes for a brief moment in time Tony Costa said he was the killer of these young women but blamed these murders on the uh, drugs that he was taking at the time hoping that, you know, he would be placed in a psychiatric hospital as opposed to Walpole State Prison.
0: What was the jury's reaction to all of that?
1: They were surprised that he was willing to speak. But again, you know, Tony Costa was never shy. He was always in your face and ready to articulate his message. And he certainly had the opportunity to do that. And uh, the judge came back, or the jury rather, with a very quick verdict. And that verdict was guilty on all counts.
0: Wow. Is he sentenced to life in prison or what's his
1: sentence? He was sentenced to life in prison. So he went, uh, you know, right from Cape Cod to uh, a number of different smaller prisons before eventually heading to Walpole State Prison in Massachusetts, which was the most secure and notorious prison in Massachusetts at the time.
0: Did he die there or what was his?
1: So Tony Costa was uh, committed suicide uh, in prison in 1973 and when the prison officials entered his cell he was found uh, hanging by his bunk they found his unpublished manuscript and there are a number of different books that he had uh, read over time Um, he was very heavily influenced by the occult and as i said there are similarities between uh, manson and costa because they were able to not only seduce You know young women and murder them so to speak but they're able to seduce others to join them in their cause you know i don't think that tony costa committed the murders of these women alone because the cleanup was uh too messy tony costa couldn't have done it himself i do think that there are so-called family members if you will and i mean that by saying that there were you know friends and associates of tony costa at the time who, again, looked at him much like Charles Manson's family looked at him. And I think they were able to uh, help him cover up these evil deeds.
0: What do you think ultimately tripped up Tony Costa? Is it that he got to know the two victims who he went on trial for killing?
1: Uh, Well, he got to know all the victims. Uh, You know, I think Tony Costa's arrogance tripped him up at the end of the day. I think he had planned on killing other women and, uh, you know, wouldn't have been stopped unless the families took these disappearances seriously. But Tony Costa took advantage of the time because, you know, teenagers and young people were leaving their families. They were leaving their hometowns and just going across country, or going around the world in an era that was carefree. And um, again, in the era before cell phones, before email, before computers, where, you know, if you manage to get a written letter back, you know, to your parents or to your loved ones, That happened few and far between. Yeah. So Tony Costa took advantage of of that particular time in American history.
0: If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Christina Chamberlain. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at TenfoldMoreWicked and on Twitter at TenfoldMore. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at TenfoldMoreWicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words.